Hello, everyone, and welcome to the season three premiere of Off the Block Swimming Podcast. This is episode one. Thank you all so much for downloading our show today, wherever you're listening. I'm your host, Robbie Cox. Now, we have been away for about a month now, and it's amazing to be back. Season three uh, has been a long time in the planning. I cannot explain how excited I am to finally let you guys see and hear the finished product over the next 10 weeks. Now, before we get into our very first guest for season three, here's just a few things you need to know about what's coming your way and how season three is going to differ from previous seasons. To start with, we'll be bringing out episodes on the daily, Monday to Friday, with each day having its own little twist. Mondays will be with Aussie legends of the pool. Tuesdays are going to be with New Zealand superstars from across the ditch. Wednesdays will showcase champions from the UK. Thursdays are going to feature superstars from the current Australian Dolphins team. And Fridays are going to feature Australian age group rising stars of the pool that you guys must keep an eye on in years to come. Sprinkle in there some extraordinary interviews with legendary US coaches, European legends, and season three is going to be nothing like you have ever heard before. Another change that is coming this time is we are now on YouTube. That's right. You can now watch your favorite episodes as well as listen to them as we are now launching our brand new YouTube channel and all episodes will drop the same day as they do on Apple Podcast and Spotify, which is awesome, I know. They are, however, shorter versions of the interview, best bits if you will. So make sure you get on the YouTube channel, check us out, subscribe and follow our channel to see all the exciting things coming your way. And remember, if the YouTube versions leave you wanting more, you can always head to Apple Podcast and Spotify to hear the interview in full. Now, as if all that news wasn't big enough, it's on to our first guest of the season, and I could not think of a better way to kick off season three than with the one and only king of the 1500 meter freestyle himself, Mr. Grant Hackett. In this chat, Grant is open and honest in answering questions he hasn't had before, his words, not mine. You can't help but lead this interview with an amazing admiration for Grant with everything he's accomplished, struggled with, and conquered. So let's get into it, mate. That is enough for me. Get excited. Get ready, because the season three premiere with Grand Hackett starts now. Away they go. No problems with the start. There is two 100s in the second in it. Gary Hall Jr., the extrovert, and Ian Thorpe battling it out down the pool. Thorpe's starting to go away from him. Joining me today on the show is one of the biggest names in the history of not just Australian swimming, but world swimming. He is one of the most successful Australian athletes of all time and a man that dominated the 1500 for over a decade. He's a three-time Olympian, former world record holder, 10-time world champion. I mean, I could go on and on, but it is my privilege to welcome to Off the Block Swimming Podcast to the one and only Mr. Grant Hackett. Grant, how are you going, mate? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Robbie. How are you? 
No, I'm good. I'm good. I've got the coffees kicking in, such as much as yourself, mate. So we're we're ready to rumble. We're ready to do this. <laughs> Firstly, Matt, I, I want to start by definitely giving you a big thank you for coming on the podcast and having a chat. And you, you didn't have to. And a lot of other people who shall remain nameless, so I'm not going to um, out people on here, but they definitely have passed on this show and appeared on other shows. And mate, you haven't done that. You've been a, a true champion. I think it's a, a test of your character there and love for swimming in Australia that you've agreed to come on. So I wanted to say, first of all, thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. No worries. Always happy to come on. Now, mate, clearly we have not been going through the same lockdown. I mean, have a look at you. You're looking as fit and healthy as I've ever seen you. I, not so much. Um, not the best in Melbourne at the moment with the coronavirus, but you've obviously found time to stay active. Where have you found this time though? Because I know you're a busy man, full-time job in finance, fiance, you know, six month old, you've got twin 10 year olds, I think. Where did you find the time? Uh, the early mornings, to be totally honest, is probably one of the best things you pick up from swimming is the fact that you, uh, you're able to push yourself and discipline yourself to get up and do exercise when you need to. Because if I don't do it, then I just simply don't get it done. So I do a, a bit of gym work at home at the moment. Like you said, we're in, back into to a lockdown, particularly here in Melbourne, so which seems to be getting worse and worse. So Got a little gym set up at home, got a rowing machine there. So I try and do as much as I can between the hours of usually 5.30 and 7 um, in the morning. And then, yeah, sort of jump in the car. I don't have to travel too far, fortunately, for work. It's only about a K, K or two away. So um, that, that's quite convenient for me. And obviously working at home quite a bit too. But, yeah, I, th I think with the lockdown, you've got to really discipline yourself to make sure that you're doing the things and keeping a healthy lifestyle um, that you would normally would and and it also keeps your sanity as well because you're just so restricted mentally how's it going at the moment coming with the second wave and and getting locked down almost again i don't know if you guys are in lockdown but i, I certainly know you're on the way and even in sydney it's starting to break back out again slowly and it's slightly mm. scaring me and i know a lot of other people because yeah. i don't know if i can take another lockdown grant i really don't <laughs> what about for yourself uh, well, we are in lockdown. We've got another six-week lockdown, which commenced last Wednesday. And, and look, the first time we went into lockdown, there was something novel about it. It was almost like, oh, what do we expect here? What's it going to be like? It was almost experimental um, because none of, us had, none of us have ever lived in anything like that before. So um, the second time around, you knew what to expect. And so, you know, there was a couple of days where it was actually quite depressing. Um, we are thinking, oh, God, I can't do that now. I can't do that now. And you realise how much your freedoms have been eaten up and... You know, I didn't, instead of being able to go to the gym in the building that I live in, I had to then bring the gym into my home again. So there's a, there's a whole sort of transition period of making sure that you've got everything set up so you can feel like there's a lot more normality than perhaps what there really is around you. So um, it wasn't nice at first, but you've got to adjust pretty quickly because there's no good kind of feeling like a victim um, around it is what I found. You've got to kind of in, embrace, um, you know, the different parts of it, you know, and, and try and... Um, recognize that you need a schedule in place, that you got to spend more time with your family. I normally travel on a plane every week or at least every two weeks. So I'm getting the opportunity to be home every single night with a six-month-old um, at home. So those are the things that I'm trying to look at that are positive um, about being in a lockdown and just having that structure still in life. So, um, and look, I'm, I mightn't even be able to come into the office too soon. For, for my job, I, I actually need to just to make sure that all the IT and our systems work. We've got 70 staff in our business, which are all working from home at the moment. And we have quite a complex um, business. So, and, and it's an investment firm. So you're managing people's money. So you've got to make sure everything is done comprehensively and done very, very well. So look, it was a challenge to go back into it. But like anything, it just tests your resilience. You, you adapt as quick as you can and you just get on with it and you find happiness 
um, in places that you know you normally wouldn't need to, to to look. I think that is great advice, mate. Now a lot to unpack with your phenomenal career, but I mentioned you know just then you're working in finance, uh, which I don't want to pretend to to know anything about because I'm hopeless with that sort of stuff. And I'm not going to ask you for any advice because I know on Howie's um, podcast you said you're not actually allowed to give any advice, so I'm not going to ask any. But um, mate, I, I know that you know you've always been um, sort of keen on it, um, in from from a young age, haven't you? Yeah, I, I have. I've always enjoyed commerce or you know, anything to, to do with business. Even at the age of five, my, I got asked what I wanted to be and I said an entrepreneur. I didn't even know what that did, but I knew it was business related. Mm. Um, and my mum kind of looked at me bizarrely when I, when I said <laughs> that uh, back in the 80s. And, and nothing really changed. Um, I, I've, I love sport um, in general. You know, I didn't just do swimming when I was younger and I, and I really got a lot out of that. I got a lot of high performance characteristics, I guess you could say, that developed through the behavioral patterns of sport. But I've always loved business as well. You know, I was trading shares at the age of 15. Um, you know, I studied finance. I've done my MBA. So I always made sure that I had more outside of the pool as well rather than just being, you know, a person who retires basically before the age of 30 and has nothing else to go to. And when you've got a, a certain personality type um, as an athlete, if you're going to be successful in that world, you need something else to go into because it's not about anything financially. It's about that sense of purpose. And if you don't have that strong sense of purpose, it can be really de you know, destabilizing. And I've learned those things the hard way, but that's, you know, that's what life's about. You kind of go through various patterns or various situations which really you know, test your resilience, um, test who you are, question yourself, you know, kind of question your values and your principles in life as well. And um, for me, I, I know having a strong sense of purpose, being involved with something that I'm really passionate about, um, gets me out of bed in the, in the morning with a smile. So, and it's hard work and it's a grind like anything to be successful in, but, um, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't change it for the world. But you're fiercely competitive in the pool. Are you the same way in the office? Oh, nothing changes. Nothing changes. You are who you are. I think, um, I'm a pretty relaxed type of person. That's how I, that's how people say I come across anyway. Um, but, you know, sort of once you dig under the surface a little bit, I'm just, I'm highly competitive and driven. And I'm not always competitive against other people. It doesn't really work like that. I use them to improve myself. That's, that's kind of how over time I've learned how I look at competition, how I look at other people, even in business, is that I don't necessarily use you to beat you, even though I love beating you. <laughs> and that feels good. Yeah. I actually use you so I can be better myself and how I can improve, how I can evolve, how I... I know that that is a continual, um, you know, sort of quest that you're on is to see, okay, I got from here to there and you sort of look behind and go, that's impressive, but can I get to there? Mm. And that's what sort of fuels me every single day, whether that was in sport or whether it's in business now. And um, I actually think there's a part of me that's arguably more competitive now because I'm more comfortable with being competitive um, because people would often say to you, are you so competitive? You're this, how do you do it all? You know, you're too full on, you're too serious. And, and I'd question myself, am I too full on? Am I too serious? And the fortunate thing, cause I've gone through a few ups and downs. I'm like, you know what? That's actually who I am. Mm. That's who I, and I'm comfortable like that. I like being full on. I like, I can't do that in every aspect of my life. I realize, but I realize that's, if I do that, that makes me feel more of me. So, and my type of personality and I get a lot of pleasure and enjoyment out of that. And I, and I also help a lot of other people through that process because I, I often inspire them or help them to get the best out of themselves or to make that little bit of improvement and they feel great about that. So um, for me, I actually feel like I, I'm almost more competitive now because 
I'm more comfortable with who I am and being competitive and being that style of personality. Do you find it hard to switch off when you get home though? I know myself, I'd nowhere near as in terms of swimming competitive. I wasn't in your level, but just in life, in the podcast and coaching, you know, I'm, I'm very competitive myself and I do find it hard to switch off when I come in the door. You know, the first thing is to my wife is always talking about something about the podcast or something about coaching and you see her eyes roll. Do, do you, do you find that hard to switch off? Oh, it, it is a challenge. There's no doubt about that. When you immerse yourself into to something and there's almost an obsessive nature about it because you want to do it so well or it's so meaningful to you, um, it's naturally difficult to turn that off. And that is probably one of the disciplines that I am getting a little bit better at. Um, and the thing for me, I realized that, you know, and I didn't do this well at all during sport, is breaks are so important. Time away, time off just to heal because then you can actually come back and, and be just as full on, take more on. You've got, you've got more capacity, more ability to be able to execute even better um, and not let yourself get burnt out or sort of let the performance plateau. Mm. Um, so I am getting better at recognizing the benefits of that because I know there's benefits of that in my performance in terms of switching off, taking a break, not obsessing about it 24 seven. Um, I go, well, if I don't do it 24-7, then I switch off. I'm actually going to be better when I do do it. So I've kind of rationalized it in my mind to go, there is actually a, a more a healthy behavior that's going to help with you in life more broadly, but also help with your success in whatever you're choosing. So um, it is a real challenge. And some nights, look, I'll be honest, it takes me a couple of hours to get to sleep because the mind is ticking over. Um, I find for me, and this is, this is really weird, and I'm disclosing this on a podcast, <laughs> in the shower is great for me. That, that is a real shift. I actually, when I have a shower, it's almost like the day washes off me. I almost think of answers for the day and then I try and stop as soon as I get out of the shower. I try and stop. If, you know, I've thought through stuff. I've washed it off me. I've thought, you know, things have come to my mind because it's a period of relaxation and now I've got to transition into to home life. Let's focus on the family. Let's focus on what they're doing. Let's focus on all the fun things that we have um, in our lives. So that is a real discipline to switch off and not easy. I'm going to take those words of wisdom to heart. I'm going to see what I can do over the next month or so. I'll, I'll get back to you and let you know how I've gone. Um, <laughs> mate, you grew up on the Gold Coast. Uh, your older brother's actually a very good swimmer himself and uh, surf lifesaving champion as well. How did swimming start for you? Uh, swimming started more by default because of my brother. Um, my dad was a police officer, so he got transferred quite a bit around the state of Queensland. And we went up to far north Queensland. My brother's um, six and a half years older than me because my mum got quite ill in between the two of us. That's why there's such a big gap. And so he was 10, I was four. We joined the local surf club. He, he was always a very good beach sprinter. Um, and then he wanted to do the surf race, did really well, finished third. Um, was really upset though because in first and second were two girls. Mm -hmm. So he actually asked mum and dad if he could do some swimming lessons. Um, so I have a lot to thank those two girls. Of course, I don't <laughs> know who they are. I don't have any clue whatsoever. Um, and then mum took him down to the local swimming pool, which was the uh, Innisfail Red Devils. Um, and basically, uh, she got the shock of her life because she asked, oh, you know, how many times do we come a week, once or twice, like you know, soccer or footy lessons? And, um, and he said, well, no, you can come four to five times um, and be here at 5 a.m. And mum was like, what? <laughs> so, so I think, um, you know, the commitment's not obviously just from the athlete themselves, but it's very much from the parents as well who are trying to juggle, you know, bringing up a family, managing their work and, and everything else that they've got going on that you don't realise until you're actually in that situation yourself. And um, so, you know, he did that. He was state surf champion within six months. So 
So he was a freak of an athlete and someone I really looked up to. I then started out just going up and down the public lanes. Um, you know, I was, I was always pretty good. I could swim pretty fast. But then, you know, I remember I got this dad said, oh, if you learn how to dive, you know, of course, start a race when I was five years of age. Um, I'll buy you the Voltron, which is a toy that I really, really wanted that I wasn't mm-hmm. going to get until probably Christmas or a birthday. Um, I literally ran up to the local swimming coach there and I said, look, can you teach me how to dive? And by that, the end of the afternoon, I knew how to dive um, quite well. So, and dad, true to his word, actually bought that toy. So I, um, I always, you know, I, th- I think with swimming, um, always just looked up to a lot of people around me, but it was really my brother that led me to the pool and, and kept me in the pool because he was so successful in it. Mate, always swimming for you. I heard, you know, you were in a, a band as a youngster as well. And, you know, the surf stuff as well. Were, were they ever options for you to pursue? Or once you sort of locked in on swimming, was that where you knew you were going to go? No, it wasn't that straightforward at all. I was doing three sports and I, and I loved all of them. And um, so I was doing the surf lifesaving stuff, which was a huge sport in our country at the time. They had the Uncle Toby Super Series on and my brother actually ended up doing that for eight years. And we had all these great names like Grant, Kenny, Trevor, Hendy, Guy Leach. And I looked up to those guys a lot. And I was very much involved um, in the surf club movement. And, you know, I, I was very competitive in that sport. So I think I, I won 21 gold medals at state titles there um, from the ages of 10 to, 10 to 13, almost every race that I went in. And then even won the Cadet Ironman, which is the under-16s, at state level as a 13-year-old. Um, I was playing rugby league as well. I played that for seven years and you know, I'm six foot six. So there's a lot of advantages at that age. I was always very tall and the tallest in my class. So I took all those sports very, very seriously. But it was in 1993 um, that Sydney got the Olympics when Juan Antonio Simaranch, you know, read it out. He said, Sydney. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was doing swimming and I was very competitive. I wasn't the best by any means, but I was, I was sort of at the top level for my age. And when that happened, I thought, wow, to go to an Olympics would be so cool. But to do it in your own backyard is just a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I knew I'd either be 19 or 20 um, in the year of 2000. And I was like, right, let's do this. And, you know, I fell in love with the 1500 meter freestyle. I got in trouble in training. So I ended up having to do it at state titles. (laughs) And then... Uh, broke the national record, looked at the history of that event. Kieran Perkins was the absolute man. He was an icon in the sport, in the country at the time. He was the world record holder. And there was just was something about that race. And I was good at it too. I was, I was naturally a good middle distance, distance athlete, um, just the way I was built. And so um, the love of swimming just grew exponentially around that particular period. And then um, you know, footy, uh, that dropped away straight away. Surf life saving took another year or two for me to uh, probably move away from that sport. And then it was all swimming. It was like, right, I'm, I'm going to the Olympic Games and I want to win. And that was as clear as it was from that age. All right. Few questions from that. Number one, when you played footy, what, what position were you? Uh, so I started out in the front row and then I, I sort of got a little bit leaner and then I went into the second row because I was just a, a big dude. Do you still follow rugby league at all? I do. Um, You know, the Broncos have always been my team. So I've been going for the Broncos since they first incepted the league back in 86 or 87. Um, I was seven years of age and Wally Lewis was my my hero. The king. combination of him and Alfie Langer. I I absolutely love that. Bit sad at the moment. Uh, Of course. (laughs) Who isn't that isn't a Broncos fan? (laughs) Look, that sport, right? You go through wild ups, wild downs, and, you know, you sit in the middle a lot of the time. So... 
it's um you know it's just it's just part of the process it's what makes winning so great that losing feels so awful so you've got to appreciate both and you've got to you got to use them both to motivate to get to get the best out of yourself Mate, I think you should be given Seabold a call and just say, listen, if you need me, I'm happy to give an inspirational speech <laughs> before they run out. Oh, uh, yeah, you could use a bit of help, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I think you could use a lot of help. Uh, mate, and the second thing you said there, you got in trouble and you had to, you had to do it at State, the 1500. What did you get in trouble for? What were you doing? Oh, well, Dennis Cottrell, I mean, he's known as probably having one of the top three hardest programs in the world, you know, a lot of our physiologists have, have said. And, um, you know, I was always a 200-meter backstroker. I wanted to go to the Olympics for backstroke. That was my initial dream. And um, I was talking over the top of him, and he said, right. And I was only 13 at the time. And he said, if you talk one more time, you're going to be doing Daniel Kowalski sets. So I was kind of over doing four or five K sets with the you know sprinters, middle distance people. And then Daniel was doing 8K sessions. And then, of course, what did I do? I spoke one more time, and he's like, right, that's it, over there. And I was like, this is a stitch up. Anyway, I went from around 5K up to the 8K. And I was keeping up with Daniel just in bits and pieces. Yeah. And, and Dennis was like, wow, that's a bit of a surprise that you're actually keeping up with him that much. And he goes, right, well, you can do the 1,500-meter freestyle at state titles. And I'm like, what sort of a stitch-up is this? <laughs> so I've gone from doing a 5K session to an 8K session. And I've gone from a 200-meter backstroke to a 1,500-meter freestyle. <laughs> so I was like, can this punishment get any worse? And um, and it was funny, I did it and I just fell in love with it. And, you know, we didn't have Google back then. We didn't have, you know, things like this with the internet and, you know, where you could just connect into information so easy. So I had to literally research every single time through swimming magazines, um, you know, for, for Kieran Perkins' best times at age 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. It was a big exercise. And I just, you know, for all of his races which he just didn't do the 1500 of course to the 200 the 400 the 800 and the 15 and i researched all four of those events for each age group and i put them up on my wall and so my goal was to to either beat or emulate those times every single year and um yeah that's kind of just how i went about my business set my goals no one told me to i just kind of knew well if you get to be the best you've got to kind of look at what the best did and what steps they actually took to, to get there because at that stage, I think I was almost five laps behind where he, he was swimming to, to be the world record holder. Well, mate, all I can say is thank God you um, didn't stop talking that day because look at the <laughs> career you went on to <laughs> have. See, that's the thing. Sometimes getting in trouble is not the worst thing in the world. <laughs> it feels like it at the time, but there's something bigger for you. <laughs> mate, as a teenager at, say, 17, you really started to stamp your mark. I know you had a good year in 1996 as well, but, you know, 97 Pampax, 98 Com Games, World Champs at Perth, uh, and then Pampax again in Sydney the following year. This is all in the lead-up to the 2000 Sydney Olympics, which to this day is still thought of as you know, the best games ever. I think we're biased, but at the same time, who cares? I still think it is. Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, you were still very much a young man at this stage. Twofolds this question. Firstly, how did you handle all that success that was coming your way? And as a result of that, how did you handle the pressure and expectations that started to come your way? I know obviously you had a, a long career, so as you got a bit older, it was probably a bit easier. But as a young man, yeah, how did you handle that period? Um, the, the period between 96 and 2000, a lot of it was easy because um, you're just this young athlete who feels invincible, right? You're not overanalyzing things. You're not overly analytical about every little situation. You just know you're good and you know if you train hard, you're getting up and ready to race and you, and you knew that your competitors were worried about you. 
And I had this guy, Ian Thorpe, right next to me as well. So we'd travel the world and it was kind of, we were just unstoppable through that period. So it was a real sense of confidence, naive confidence though. Um, not, not deep, full understanding, knowing what you're sort of playing into. And I think because I did have that naive confidence, Sydney was a little bit of a shock. Um, that was hard. That was a different sort of pressure that I'd never experienced that I had no insight or real preparation for. And even if I did, I think it would have been really limited because you can only really go into that situation and experience it and go, okay, am I good enough as a person, as an individual, the ability to be able to absorb pressure and use it in this situation and get the outcome that I'm looking for. And, and you don't know until you walk into the stadium. You know, you can do four years of you know, mental preparation with a psychologist, but you've got to walk out there and test it. And unfortunately, there's no practices for that. <laughs> and so in Sydney, I think, you know, for me, I had probably more downs and ups. I got finished with two gold medals, but I should have, you know, medaled in the 200 and the 400 as well. I've been smashing the 400 for the last few years with Ian. We were always, either one of us were looking at the breaking the world record. I think I held the short course record. He held the long course world record. So um, I definitely should have been right there with him in that particular race. Um, so, you know, for, for me, there was some aspects of that that were failures, but, you know, there were some huge successes. And obviously I was there to win the 1500, which worked out. But still, I, I didn't get it all right through that entire week. And I still learned a lot of lessons that probably put me in a much stronger position for, that, for the next four years versus the, the naive confidence that I probably felt in those formative years of my international career. Well, you were a bit crook though, weren't you, that week? I know the 1500 in Sydney, you know, you, you were sick, you weren't well, and you're up against the sentimental favourite in Kieran Perkins. Talk to yeah. me about your memory of, of that race mentally. How did you approach that race? To that stage, that's the biggest race of your career, no doubt. And, yeah. and you were going in crook as well. Yeah, I, I always, like, I, I had this habit, and this is probably the initial part of the conversation when we were just talking about the importance of rest and switching off. I didn't do that very well back then. Um, and Olympic years, I was like, I was going to win at all costs. So I was just going to train, train and train and not rest and then just go max, even when it was a recovery session. Like I was, I was stupid. So and I was just so ambitious and focused on getting the outcome that it actually cost me quite a bit. So my Olympic years weren't necessarily my best years of my career because I overdid it and I didn't structure it the right, the right way. So in Sydney, at the start of um, that year-round trials, we took some blood tests. I didn't even know, but I had Epstein-Barr syndrome, so which is like a form of glandular fever. It's a virus. And so I couldn't really do the quality of speed work. And that's why my two and four suffered quite a bit. Um, and I didn't know because you know, Dennis didn't tell me about the blood test results. <clears throat> Pardon me. He just um, kind of trained me a different way, which I thought was a bit odd. Backed off the gym work a bit, so I wasn't quite as strong. Um, focused on more endurance work when I was like, well, Maybe we're just focusing on winning the 1500 and, and that's it. Yeah. Um, but I didn't really have too many insights because I don't think he wanted me to uh, mentally be worried or vulnerable. So I would have liked to have known if I was being completely frank, but um, I think he was just doing the best he could because, you know, as, as a coach, you win an Olympic gold medal too because they put so much investment and time and energy into to it. And there are your emotional sort of, support as well through all those ups and downs so for, for me it was a really difficult first half of the week and it did take all my mental strength and um, resilience to be able to put those behind me pretty quickly and focus on what you know the, what job needed to be done and what sort of race style needed to be executed in a very difficult set of circumstances so yeah that that illness definitely definitely compromised me quite a bit 
um, through that. And then to have Kieran Perkins swim the best since he'd broken the world record six years earlier that he, he'd had um, over the last sort of you know, half of his career was kind of like, wow, this is all going against me. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, speaking of Kieran, uh, yourself, uh, you know, we here in Australia have a rich history when it comes to the 1500 and, and dominating him. I mean, go back as far as you want. Glenn Houseman, Stephen Holland, uh, Murray Rose, John Conrad's, Andrew Ball Charlton, you can go back as far as you want. Have we gone away from that a little bit, do you think, here in Australia? Do you think we're becoming a little bit too sprint-focused? Um, look, it's, it's one of those things that I think just goes through cycles, right? Um, almost having Kieran, Ian and I across those, and Daniel Kowalski, and you, know, you highlighted Glenn Houseman at the start of that in the early 90s. Um, I think having all of us through that era it created some sort of sense of bias, right, for anybody who's kind of, you know, sits at age 30 or 40 today because we were just so used to winning. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, we won in 92, we won in 96, we won in 2000, we won in 2004. You know, I like to think I, I should have won if I did my heat swim in 2008, <laughs> but I finished second. And then kind of it goes away. And, and that's just the way these cycles work, right? Like, you know, we get people there that are kind of coming up and then they kind of, you know, don't quite cut it. Um, it's a different style of race today. The Europeans are really starting to, to dominate the 1500 meter freestyle and it'll circle back around here eventually. And our sprint's really strong at the moment. Our sprint and sort of coming up more into to the middle distance, you know, with the likes of you know, Mac that we see there, our 200 meter freestyle guys are, are very, very strong. Of course, we've got Kyle down there and it's kind of like we've just kind of moved back into to that space. It's not a bad thing. It's just a, a kind of different area of strength that we have at the moment. So look, yeah, right now it's it's not as strong as what we would like, of course, given the history that we have. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to have a great, you know, sort of fifteen hundred meter swimmer moving forward. Who that's going to be, I, I don't know. I have a fair idea of who it's going to be, mate, and I'll I'll text it to you a little bit later. Um, I spoke to you uh, before about you know you coming up as a seventeen year old, right beside you around the same time as a fourteen year old by the name of Ian Thorpe. Yeah. How enjoyable was that friendly rivalry? And I know you guys were mates, but once you hit the pool, there's no doubt it's, you know, it, you're going head to head. Yeah. yeah. How enjoyable was the rivalry, especially when you came down to race the two and the four, but even when he stepped up and raced the eight? Yeah, it was funny. I won my first world championship at age 16 and I was almost the youngest there ever. Then all of a sudden there's this guy right beside me who wins one at age 15. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and I, and I remember I'm two and a bit years older than Ian, so I just turned 17 for the 97 Pan Packs. He was, you know, sort of obviously at the back end of 14. And I remember turning around and seeing a time of, you know, 347.1, I think it was. I'm pretty sure it would have won the Olympics the year before. And, um, but I saw her in second 349. It was, it was Ian Thorpe at 14, 349. Like, it was beyond freakish. And that was actually, yeah, I celebrated for about, two seconds and then I was like oh my god you went 349 what's going on and, and it kind of just went from there it kind of exploded every time we raced we improved we pushed each other um, I think you know we went to the trials for world championships and then we went to the world champs we both went 346 he just out touched me by about 0.1 of a second and at 15 I was 17 and he won his first world championship we then went to the Commonwealth Games later on in that year we both went 344 um, the world record was 343.8, which was Kieran Perkins done back in 1994. And, you know, the next year he went 341 and my, my 400 didn't improve um, as quick through that period. It wasn't really until 2001 I made a significant drop again. So, um, 
it was just a, a great time to, to be in the sport. And look, Ian was a movie star. He wasn't just a great athlete. He was a rock star anywhere we went. And um, it was all a bit of a novelty and it was all a bit of fun. Um, and we were so successful through that period. It was just um, nice to, to be around such you know, great icons and heroes and, and people performing so well. It's just, it's so inspiring to, to be around that. And you take that back to your training and the hard mornings of getting up at quarter to five and having to push yourself through for, the, for that session. Mate, no doubt he was a superstar. He came to our pool um, last year um, for you know to talk to the kids and stuff like that, and we'd promoted that Ian was coming, and there was just people everywhere. I didn't even I've never my training session had never been that busy. All of a sudden, we had kids coming out of. I don't even think some of the kids were even in our squads. They were just turned up. And the thing that surprised me was just there were parents taking photos without even asking. And I said to him, is this normal? Like, this is a bit crazy. He said, oh, I don't think you could ever think this is normal. This is, you know, this is, it's, it's, it's what I have to deal with, but I, I don't yeah. think it's normal. And, and look, and he's been retired basically since 2006. Um, and you think he's still got that sort of rock star status within the sport. And he always will because he was so phenomenal. But I remember, you know, being in Japan where he was arguably a biggest, bigger rock star over there than what he was here. And just, I remember people, hordes of people just running through the foyer to grab him, to get a photo. And, and I would start laughing because, you know, we just finished a race and, and I was like, it's like, I said, it's like you're one of the Beatles. Yeah. Like it was people with that, you know, just insane around him. They would, they would just lose their rational thinking mind. Like they would just go nuts for him. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty interesting period and um, it was pretty pretty fun to be around sometimes. Mate, your unbeaten run in the 1500, as I mentioned, went for over a decade. Was that something you were constantly you know, mindful of? I mean, take us inside the mind of a, of a champion here and what kept you motivated getting up and, and, and you know, trying to be your best? Because you know, you'd obviously achieved so much at that stage. And, and I'll use the analogy of like the rugby league. Um, they always talk about it's harder to go back to back and other roosters did it, but because, you know, you've got, you've, you work so hard, you got there, you attained it, then you've got to go back and redo it. And a lot of the time that's hard for those players to do. You obviously managed to do it for, I think it was like 11 years. Yeah. You know, what was going through your mind? What kept fueling that fire? Uh, probably a bit of paranoia um, in there. It's just, just <laughs> kind of who I am. And I, I think, um, you know, I forget the exact saying, but, you know, normally after your greatest successes are your greatest failures um, and, and sort of vice versa. That's, that's true. Um, and I was really conscious of that. And I never enjoyed a performance for too long. I, I always wanted to see what else could I do? How could I improve? And I think having Ian there in the shorter races always motivated and spurred me on to, to try and find what else I could actually do to improve aspects of those races. And so I think um for me it wasn't really about that track record at first it was more about how do i continuously improve and i remember winning a world championship when i was 17 and i said to my mum because there was so much um, attention and i kind of you know got over that at a certain point in time and i said I said to my mum, i remember being in the kitchen with her and i just said i'm sick of it like i'm over it like yeah one but it's done mm. like i've got to focus on the next thing like the next goal because that's what everyone will be looking at and so I, I never really got sucked into, um, I guess, the, the intoxication of success um, at certain points in time because I was always focused on what is the next objective, what is the next goal. And I was always really critical of myself in terms of that's a weakness and I've got to work on that. 
and, and I meant it. So it's not like I went back into training complacent. I went back into training going, I've got to fix that. I've got to drive that. And so um, for me, that just then added up over to a time period when all of a sudden it got to, to eight years in, in 2004 and people were talking about this track record. It was in the, the papers. It was one of the longest winning streaks in, in world sport across any sport. And then people were saying, wow, if you get to 10 years and, and it was really weird. I, I, I found myself then all of a sudden, instead of playing that, you know, offensive role where I was attacking all the time and driving and trying to improve, I started getting defensive in my racing. And I started thinking about the track record. Oh, wow, that, that is pretty cool. Your, your ego is getting, you know, sort of massaged around being, you know, 10 years unbeaten at every single level in sport. And so I was kind of starting to shift my mindset around that. And then after 04, when I nearly lost to Larson Jensen, and, um, you know, I kind of came back from those Olympic games. I was, I was really sick through that period. But um, that was the, the most challenging year, I think, for me in the sport. But I was like, you know what? I'm over everyone talking about that. I don't care about that. I will race until I lose. And that's just the way it's going to be because it is changing my position. It's changing my perspective and it's not for the better. So they can keep talking about that, but it's not for me to care or to worry about. So I started focusing on trying to improve and win again. And then all of a sudden the next year, I got World Swim of the Year. I broke you know, the 800 meter record of Ian Thorpe. I won my fourth consecutive um, long course world title in the 1500 and I was back. Um, so I, I think for me, um, when I raced in 2007 at the world championships, which was the first time the 11th year of winning, um, a lot of people were coming up to me and saying, cause I wasn't going to win that race. There was a, you know, personal situation with my, my ex-wife at the time that, you know, she was quite ill in the lead up to that. And so I wanted to make sure I was there for her and supporting her and, um, you know, and, and doing the right thing from a family perspective, which is way more important than sport. And it really compromised my preparation. I couldn't put the time and effort and just didn't have the energy to, to win at that level. And I still made the final and everyone was saying, don't do it, don't do it. You know, you've won for over 10 years straight. Why do you want to compromise your record? And I was like, you know what? I've earned the right to be here. My country expects me to get up and race. And even if I think I might not win, then I still have to give it my absolute best. And so, you know, I could have kept that that track record i could have missed that fight so to speak as a boxer but i was like you know what you've, you've got to be able to take the losses with the wins that's that's part of sport that's part of developing your strength and, and, and character and confidence in sport as well as to be able to go i've got to bounce back from those losses and i think i did a really good job i stuffed up beijing completely but everything else in between that moment and going into beijing i did really really well you mentioned Beijing there and something you mentioned on the Howie Games podcast and shout out to Howie if he's listening because I do love his work. Um, you mentioned something that kind of shocked people a little bit uh, and that was that you looked at your silver medals in the cupboard as failures. I don't know if they're in the cupboard. I don't know where they are, but for the sake of this conversation, they're in the cupboard. Um, <laughs> and, and I think it's interesting because, you know, if we you know, look at all the, you know, sort of next level champions such as yourself in the 1500 Beijing, probably Michael Phelps from the 200 fly in London, and even, you know, you look at Susie O'Neill and everything she accomplished, you know, Madam Butterfly, but her 200 fly from Sydney still stays with her to today. Do you think that mindset is just something that only a select few in the world are going to be able to understand and, and that, you know, a lot of others probably aren't going to? Because that definitely, you, you saying that they were failures definitely sort of made some headlines where people go, why, why would he think that? Yeah, no, it was quite funny because I didn't expect that sort of reaction, you know, to get into mainstream media, my comment there, 
because it's exactly how I feel. I mean, I'm, I'm totally disgusted by my performances there because I know I could have been a better athlete and they're absolute um, recognition of failures for me at a personal level. I get for most people going to Olympics is a, an amazing success and you're referred to an Olympian as the rest of your life. It's kind of this, you know, big tick against performance and results against your name. And then getting a medal is like, holy hell, you're an Olympic medalist. Um, and it's funny, just my definition of success and failure was really clear in those races and I was either winning or losing. And so, and that hasn't changed today. In fact, it's probably worse today because I think I'm older and more mature now. And if I, if I had the lens that I've got today on that performance, I'm sure I could have done a better job like anybody. Um, so yeah, so having those, those silver medals are reminders of what I did wrong, um, not reminders of success by any means. So and that's just the way it is. And, and I think you, you're right, probably only a certain category of people can understand that. Um, but that's what makes them what they are as well. And I think it's what made me what I was. And I think to your point before, when we were talking about how did you have such a long you know, winning streak, like the Sydney Roof to do back to back is absolutely remarkable. Um, I think it's because of that mindset. So it put me in really good stead for the sport 99% of the time because I was eternally dissatisfied with my results and always wanted more and always wanted to see more improvement out of myself and always knew I could give more. Um, and there's evidence of that the whole way along my career. And then when I got those failures, well, they felt like absolute failures and it'll never change. I'll never be proud of those results and I'll always feel the way I do towards them. In fact, even when I started my, my career in finance, I actually considered putting that silver medal from Beijing in my drawer and going, I should actually look at that each day just to make sure I don't feel like that again, to make sure that I don't have poor execution and things that are meaningful to me, that I have to deliver an outcome that I really want. So that, that's how much I looked at that medal as something I didn't want to feel like again. Mate, I've got to be honest, when I heard that, two things. One, I, I felt, as I just said, I think only a select few people can understand that. And I'm certainly not one of them, but I can appreciate it. And two, it reminded me just of Ricky Bobby and uh, what his dad taught him from Talladega Nights. And that's, if you're not first, you're last. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, is, it is. I can, I can be a bit more feral sometimes. But <laughs> it's kind of, it is, it is that mentality. Not yeah. as comical as that, but it's... <laughs> It's just the way, way it feels. Where look, you know, and it's not like that across the spectrum. It's like that for those races that I'm talking yeah. about. So the, the bronze medal, I like a lot more from Beijing because it was in a relay team that was a new relay team. Thorpe was gone. Klimi was gone. You know, Kowalski was gone. All the great people that we have from that period had retired. And we, we, it was myself as the old dude and a bunch of, you know, fresh new ta talent that weren't, you know, perceived to be as great as those guys, like no one really is. So it's, it was remarkable for us to get up in that sort of arena and get a bronze medal. So that was a real victory for me. So I, I don't just go, it's either winning or nothing. There is a certain context and you know, there's, there, there are different elements to it. Uh, as Ricky Bobby's dad did say to him after it, hell, Ricky, I made that up. You come fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, the truth came out eventually. Yeah, exactly. Mate, talk to me about, you mentioned there some of the highlights. I mean, you've had a Hall of Fame career. There's no doubt about it. And I didn't think it was appropriate for me to go through and pick out the highlights for you. So what I wanted you to do now is just, you know, what are some of the swims? What are some of the moments? Could even be relays. I know how much you love being a part of the relays with the boys. Yeah. What are some of those things that, that stand out to you most? 
Um, I think um, winning in my home country. I mean, that, that kind of pops first into my mind. Um, breaking Kieran's record by 7.1 seconds, um, knowing that I'd been good enough to do that for some time but hadn't executed a, a great race to be able to um, have that moment, um, that's definitely highlights to me. Um, breaking the world record for the 800 meter freestyle was really significant in 2005 because I'd broken the world record twice before but finished second to this bloke named Ian Thorpe. Mm. He just broke it by a little bit further. And that doesn't happen to too many people throughout their career. Um, so do, doing that, because um, I felt like the two and 400 were his, and I was kind of coming in his territory, but I felt like the eight and 15 were kind of my babies. <laughs> so, and he took one away from me. Mm. Um, it, it, it was just so phenomenal. He could have <laughs> taken any event away from anyone if he actually came for it, I'm pretty sure. But... Um, so those ones, and, and another one that most people would not consider is 1999 in Hong Kong at the World Short Course, where I went 335.01 in a you know, little pair of uh, bathers. Um, the world record was a guy, Daniel Loder, of course, who won the two and four back in 96 in Atlanta. He held the world record of 340 just a few months before that. Ian broke it at the trials for that meet when we were qualifying to go to the world championships. And he went 339.8. So he was the first person to ever go under 340. Then all of a sudden, literally just a few months later, him and I go to the world championships. I go 335.0. So I smashed the world record by 4.8 seconds and he goes 335.7. So to break a, a world record by that sort of margin and just how good that race actually felt, the execution of that particular event was um, just spot on. It was perfect. Uh, was really, really satisfying. So they're kind of probably a, a few performances that, that really stand out for me. 2004, Athens, mate, and I'll, I'll get to the inspirational 1500 in a mm -hmm. moment, but talk to me about the race of the century. Not obviously the result that you would have probably been after, but in terms of, of the names in that race, Thorpe, Vanden Hugenband, Phelps, yourself, we haven't yep. seen anything like that probably since. And, and hopefully we're getting to the stage now where those names are starting to accumulate again. But talk to us about that race. Yeah, that, that one, I mean, the 200 meter freestyle was always a fun race for me. It wasn't one that I really took seriously. I only did the 200 to qualify for the relay um, because it's impossible to be able to be a, a great 1500 meter freestyler as well as win the 200. Even though I did hold the world record at one stage, it just, it's not something that's sustainable um, in terms of being able to run that sort of spectrum. It's like asking Usain Bolt to win the 5,000 as well as the hundred. It's just, you know, but you know, if you're the 5,000 meter runner and you make the top eight in the hundred meter final, the hundred meter dash, then it's pretty cool. Right. Yeah, so yeah. And that race, the 200-meter freestyle, is the race that brings everybody together um, that is great within the sport. And, and it still does today. So, you know, whether it was, you know, I look at the race in 2012 where Yannick Agnell, which I still think is the greatest 200-meter freestyle that I've ever seen in the history of the sport. Um, you know, he had Sun Yang, he had Park in there, he had Ryan Lochte. Um, you know, just the great names that have won that event um, in history is... You know, Michael Phelps back in 2008, of course, Thorpe in 04, Peter Van den Hoogenband in 2000. But it brings the most individual Olympic gold medalists together that race. And when you saw Peter Van den Hoogenband there, who is arguably the greatest sprinter with Alex Popoff of all time, you've got Ian Thorpe, arguably the greatest athlete in the sport at that particular point in time, in the history of it. Um, you know, sort of throw Michael Phelps in there. He was pretty good too. <laughs> and then, you know, I kind of came in there with my track record. Cleek Keller was another great athlete. So um, 
for me, I, I didn't swim my, my fastest race. So my best time would have just been right on the edge of um, Phelps, who finished third in that particular race. But just to be a part of that event and have the ability to be able to swim a, you know, 1,500 and an 800 or 400 and then come in and actually match it pretty close to those guys. And I think I finished third in the World Championships um, the year prior. So I was always kind of in the mix and swimming pretty fast. And, and the following year, I... I Went a 144 in my relay split uh, at the World Championships in Montreal. So I always had the ability to do a good tournament of freestyle. I finished second to actually Phelps um, in the individual race in that, that World Champs too. So I was always getting medals or kind of right there in the 200. But yeah, to, to have all those great names in the, in the, in the one race um, and for the race to actually deliver such a tight result for everyone sitting on the dice, I think was really, really cool. Wait, the 1500 there from Athens... Let's go through a partially collapsed lung. I think your lung capacity had diminished by 25% if my maths is right. Um, give people a little understanding. What do you go, where do you go in your mind in that race to pull out the effort that you did? I mean, it gives me goosebumps. I went back and rewatched it the other day. So it's, it's very inspiring to watch in your mind in that race. Where, where were you at? Cause you were, you were struggling physically. Yeah, it was, it's it's hard to really articulate in words where you do go, how you know deep you dig. But there is a there's a significant desire um, to be able to win a race. There's a significant amount of confidence because of your track record that you've got to be able to bring to the table to actually dive that deep and go. I'm going to be able to do this. And you know when my lung, which I didn't know at the time, I knew I was sick. I was coughing up yellow mucus all the time, and it was it wasn't a good state to be in. But and I've been in that state for you know, seven and a half months prior to the Olympic Games. Um, when this was partially deflated and I was just struggling breathing, um, you know, the, the lead into that race, you know, it was okay. I'd sort of got two silver medals by around 0.1 of a second each. Um, so I wanted three gold medals. That was always my sort of goal going into to those Olympic Games. And then the 1500, I think winning it in 2000, knowing what I'd achieved in those four years and knowing at that particular point in time, I did give up after the heats. Like it's not all smooth sailing. I feel confident and I feel good. Even if I'm down, I know how to get myself back up straight away. It wasn't like that. I kind of thrown the goggles out of the car window and said, that's it. It's over. I, I do not feel good enough and capable enough to be able to win this race. And then slowly you bring yourself back mentally. Slowly you start to, to yourself and you start, you know, going, okay, I've spent four years preparing for this moment. I'm not just going to throw it in. And that's kind of your, your turning point, your inflection point where you go, I can actually do something about this between now and standing on those blocks. And I did. I just tried to do every single thing right. I tried to really just get a positive mindset every time my um, you know, thoughts went into a negative headspace. So I switched off my phone because people knew you know, things weren't quite right for me. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I had a really firm race strategy, but then I was coming up uh, against a guy who was breaking the American record, doing a personal best time by 11 or 12 seconds and swimming the race of his life. And it was really funny because the last 100 metres of that race, the, the desire and the will, willingness to push myself and my commitment to getting the result, um, saw one of my fastest last 100 metres in a 1500 that I'd ever done. I came home faster than what I did when I did the world record three years earlier. So... I don't know where those moments come from, except from, from absolute will and commitment and self-belief that the pain, you can push through it because it was the most painful experience of a race that I've ever had. And I actually said I wouldn't race like that again because it was just, yeah, it was tough. 
I think you've proved the point of a lot of coaches and I know myself, um, I always talk to my athletes about your, your mind is the, is the biggest thing that holds you back from anything. It's not, it's not your body. And you saying that like your, your body was not shot. I mean, you were still able to, to win an Olympic swim, but you know, it was certainly not at its, it's hundred percent best, but your mind was, you know, able to overcome that. And you, you know, your last split, as you said, then was one of your fastest ever. Yeah. And, and it was really funny. And I think, one of the things that I took away from that race was the value of competition, right? Like we'd all love our competition to be a bit easier on some days or not to be there. So we get yeah. that and uh, everything goes well and we win everything. But it taught me the value of having really good competition that day because when I turned at the 1400 meter mark, the closest margin that I'd had over an eight year period was about five seconds, which was Kieran in, back in 2000. So I'd never actually been pushed in the last hundred meters. I was kind of racing the clock and just pushing myself. Then when I turned, I was in lane three, Larson was in lane six. And I saw that we turned you know, right together. I was like 0.15 or some non-existent margin there. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I actually got a shock for a sec because I wasn't looking the last couple of laps. I was trying to hold my rhythm as best I could. But then I was like, right, whatever it takes. That's yeah. actually what I told myself, whatever it takes. And I just put the hammer down and went for it. And then when I turned down the other end, I saw that I got a bit of a margin on him. And that gave me the confidence to go, you just keep going, keep going. And, um, yeah, I did that 56.0, I think it was, which was one of my fastest last splits ever because of competition, because of having someone there. I was the world's best for eight years, but I realized I could have done more because mm. I had someone there pushing me and showing me what I was capable of. Mate, it was a phenomenal swim. And, and one thing it gave you when you came back was the key to the city of the Gold Coast. Um, now, a few things on that. A, do you still have that key? B, how big is the key? And C, can I borrow it? Like, does it get you into clubs on Cavill or Orchard Ave? You know, the funniest thing about that key, um, you know, I've, I've sort of moved around a bit a few years ago. I moved back down to Melbourne and I've got kids, twins, Charlie's and Jagger from the first marriage. And my son Jagger walked into the office one day because it was just on the ground. And the key's actually fallen off the plaque. I should get it back on there. I don't put any of that stuff up at home. You walk into my home, you'll barely see a picture of I think I've got one picture up there. It's all just family stuff otherwise. But he walks into the room and he was like seven or eight years of age at the time. And he picks this key up and, you know, it's about this big. It's, yeah. And he looks at me and goes, Dad, why do you have a giant's key? <laughs> <laughs> and I just started laughing and I was like, oh, mate, that's a long story. I wasn't going to explain it to you. But, yeah, so I, I've still got it. My kids think it's hilarious because it's a giant's key. But um, I, I don't, I've never tested it on the Gold Coast. So I don't think it's going to be opening too many doors for me. <laughs> Hey, talk to me about your mate, your mentor, and your coach, Dennis Cottrell. Um, to me and a lot of others, uh, he's a super coach and the measuring stick when it comes to, to coaching in not just this country, but the world. But what is he to you? Well, all of those things that you said. Um, I, I think for me, Dennis and I had a, a remarkable student-master type relationship. We, um, you know, I just took everything on board. I knew he was amazing at what he does. He brought so much passion to the table. You know, the thing about Dennis, and, you know, he's copped a little bit of criticism coaching the Chinese, but it's for Dennis, it's not about necessarily winning or losing. It's about how good can you be? How good can the sport be? That's what he wants to see. That's his real driver. And, and he's just got all this passion and energy, and, he, and he's always had it to see improvement all the time. And so that's why I think as a, as a team that we were for over 20 years, I was coached by this guy. 
um, that we, we share that same passion and that same passion for improvement and seeing things move forward. And, and we just kind of inspired each other the whole time. Um, and he always, he's, he's a tough coach. He would be so hard on you if you weren't performing or weren't giving your best. Um, but that didn't happen to me too often. He had a real respect for me because he knew I was always there to, to, to give my absolute best. And so, um, and he was always thinking outside the box, you know, like what else can we do? How can we improve that? How can we, you know, move forward there? Technically, like, you know, that's not right. How do we actually improve that? And he was always on your stroke, even in between the, the you know, short interval work that we'd be doing, he'd be on top of it. So um, with a guy like that, um, he's always improving his craft the whole time. He's tough to beat as a coach because he is purely focused on improving what he does to see you improve and to see the sport evolve. And he just loves seeing fast swimming. Like he loved watching Michael swim. He loved watching Ian swim. Um, you know, and he loves, you know, the, the, the sport as a whole. So, you know, and I shared that passion. And, and look, he's, he's just a unique character. You know, he's... He's um, always been just so committed to the sport and seeing the sport progress. And so, and he's just always been a, a very close friend of mine and, and still remains and will always be a very close friend of mine. And, you know, until we're both not, not around. Now, mate, I've been getting a bit of flack from my coaching mates for not asking enough swim specific questions here on the show. So I thought this one I'd, I'd give out to them, given that we've just mentioned Dennis. Um, what are some of the tougher sets you guys have done through your career? Uh, I did one set where I did 250s. This is all long course stuff as well. 250s on 35 cycle, holding about 30 seconds. So that was that was a pretty tough one. Um, I did a, another set. This was a lead into to Beijing where I did 15 100s. So I was doing a, a race simulation. Mm -hmm. um, the first 10 were on 105 and the last five were on a minute cycle. And I held 56, 57 the whole way through and finished with a 54. Wow. So that was, that was pretty brutal. Um, some of the other tough ones I used to do, like, you know, 12, 400s down, down to 410 cycle. Um, that was always a bit of a staple diet. So, yeah, there were some pretty brutal sets. And, and I talk about those, except for the 250s, that was more of a one-off. But those other sets were more constant narratives. I used to do 15, 300s on 340 where every third one was at 1500 meter pace and i used to do a broken time of around 1430 or 1430 low so always had to try and sort of get inside my world for, for that one so yeah we had some and we used to do a lot of these sets back to back it was it was pretty brutal mate distance swimmers are they a different breed i mean does it take a different mindset to look at a long challenging set and and say let's go and another question to that is what what makes a great distance swimmer do you think I think you have to have the mental ability to be able to overcome those thresholds of absolute hurt and pain because if you, you know, being an endurance athlete, you have to go up real quick in terms of what pace, you know, your heart rate, what, how you're pushing yourself, your physiology. Mm. But then you have to have the ability to go, I've got to stay here for an hour or two hours. Um, and so in that, there is just so many mental hurdles. So you have to be very good at going, approaching that next mental hurdle I do this morning, you know, I'm doing this bit of a rowing thing with a couple of, um, you know, people from around the world. One of my friends invited to a group of about, you know, 16 of us, I think. And we, we're just doing, you know, this sort of rowing challenge of a 5K race that we're going to finish with. And this morning's challenge was, you know, an hour straight of a certain time that was off a 5K race that we did the other day. And 
I was like, I'd barely been on a roller in my life. I'd been on like three times I've been on a Mergo. So I, I thought 60 minutes straight at that pace because I really pushed myself that 5K pace and you, you know, 500s have to be sort of three to seven seconds off that. And that was exactly this morning is how I used to feel in swimming. Mm. You know, when I was getting, when I was watching that clock um, count down from 60 minutes, every sort of 10 minutes was like, okay, now I'm going to get through this threshold. Now I'm going to, and then I'd set myself another little challenge and then I'd go, okay, I got to, okay, 30 minutes. I see it go down to 29.59, the clock, easiest half to go. All those things that I used to do yeah. as, a, as an athlete, as a swimmer, were all these little mental strategies to overcome those thresholds and those hurdles. And yeah, you, you do have to think differently. Like it was, it's a very different way versus sprint training. You know, that's at high intensity, but you know, it's over quick mm. where you've got to develop mental strategies to be able to be able to push yourself at a high rate for a very long time. Great takeaways there for any distance swimmers that are listening to the podcast. Now in keeping with the distance swimmer theme, mate, what are your thoughts around Katie Ledecky? Um, oh. You know, what she's done, obviously distance, middle distance, and not just for females. She's, you know, one of the biggest names in this in the history of swimming. Well, she's arguably the greatest in the history of the sport mm. <laughs> in terms of her performances, how far she has taken world records down, how many gold medals she has, um, the fact that she's been able to produce so many gold medals as a distance athlete as well, because it's not as easy. Um, and and I say that with all due respect, but let's look at the way the swimming program works. You have a 1500 or an 800 as a female. Normally they've got both of them now in the program, which I would have loved when I was swimming mm. for the Olympic games. But then all of a sudden the next race is a 400 and then the next one's 200. Then everything kind of sits around 100, 200. They're completely different energy systems. They're different, you know, degrees of strength, and muscle development. So one's very aerobic, one's very anaerobic and needs a sprint aspect to it as well. So you don't have as many chances. It's not a 1500 meter backstroke you can do or a 1500 meter butterfly for argument's sake. So you're really concentrated in one particular area of the sport. So for someone like her to be able to come down in so many different races and the ability that she has to be able to swim the different distances so quickly is absolutely phenomenal. I, I would love to get her insights around what her mental strategies are to, to push through the endurance training that she does and the rate that she actually does it at. So yeah, I, I, she's probably my favorite female swimmer of all time. And it's, I'm biased because I'm naturally a freestyler and I'm a distance person, but seeing what she's done is just, it's beyond human. Had a coach, Greg Mean, on the other day, and uh, I did try and get a few insights. And he gave me a little bit, but he didn't give me too much, obviously. He didn't want to give too many trade secrets away to, to the Aussie coaches who, who might be listening, and one Dean Boxall especially who might have been listening. Um, but he did say there are times where he does just sit back in a set and he becomes a fan rather than a coach and just marvels well, at the things the she can thing do in is, training. You could probably – this is one thing I've learned and probably reflected on afterwards because you get so um, – you know, protective of your own IP, right? And what you're doing to be great at your craft. And um, the thing is you could disclose every single thing and no one's ever going to input and inject you with that mindset and that ability to be able to push through and the size of the heart that someone like Katie Ledecky actually has. Um, no matter how much you have that information, it takes a special person with an absolute X factor that is beyond comprehension to, to do what she has done. And then, you know, with Darianis, hopefully we've got someone there who's, who's pushing her right to the brink. It would be great to see. 
Mate, there's no doubt publicly that you've been through a lot, um, you know, personally through your career and, and to your credit, you've come out the other side and you're doing really well, which I think is an inspiration to anyone who suffers from any form of anxiety or mental illness. Uh, I think for, for me, you know, you've explained yourself more than enough on lots of different shows. So I'm not going to go too much into, you know, what you've been through, because as I said, I think you've talked about it more than enough. But what I do want to ask is what role did the GOAT Michael Phelps play in that process for you? Oh, look, like anybody in life, you go through your ups and downs, right? And, and the reality is because of what I achieved in sport, it puts you in this, this public light. <clears throat> and so the things that, that I went through and the ups and downs I went through, I didn't have the luxury of, you know, just dealing with them with the people closest to me. So, um, and because there was so much attention back here in Australia when you would go through those um, bad times, and it's arguably a bigger story than winning because it's like, oh, wow, we perceived you to be... Mm-hmm you know, unflappable, um, you know, and, and you were kind of this golden haired boy type thing. And it's like, well, that's actually not reality either because we're all far from perfect and we've all got our, our issues and challenges and things that we don't necessarily handle well. So the best thing for me was to, to you know, I, I heard from Michael, he kept texting me, telling me to come over, telling me to stay with him, spend some time with him. We've, we've always had this huge amount of respect for one another and what we've been able to do in the sport. And, um, I was like, right, I'm going to come over. I'm going to stay there for a while. And it was really funny. I was only going to stay there for a couple of months and ended up staying there for, for most of 2017 and living with him. And, and I'd trained with him on several occasions before and lived with him briefly before as well. So, um, you know, it was just really nice for me to live more of a normal life for, for a period where I didn't have that attention every single day or people contacting me. I didn't have to rely on... Um, you know, people telling you what to do all the time or pushing in this direction or that direction or making, you know, sort of judgments before they'd even met you. Like it, it felt like I was in a judgment free world. I felt like I had a more of a normal life for a period. And I had very supportive people such as Michael, his wife, Nicole, um, Alison Schmidt, who, who've, um, and they've all been through their ups and downs. So that's the thing. Michael has been through public ups and downs. And so he understands and appreciates it. So I think his appreciation for my personality because, you know, we come from similar ilk in terms of the way we approach, you know, sport and competing and improving. Um, and then to go through ups and downs. So the mental health side and the challenges there, he's, he's been through his and just, you know, we have a very similar sense of humor. We're able to, to laugh at the same thing and we just have a good time. So we're just mates, we're just normal people. So it's, um, you know, and then being in that environment. So, yeah, no, his, his support um, from him and his family through that entire period is something that I will be forever in debt to, 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 to him. So, yeah, Michael Phelps is a much bigger person than the gold medals that hang around his neck for me or and much bigger than any other competitor I've ever had because of the way he was there for me, you know, through those challenging times. And I had Bob Bowman on the podcast not long ago and he mentioned a few training sessions where you and Michael were in the pool together and, and, you know, going head to head. And I imagine, you know, given the competitors that you both were, neither would take a backward step. We're a little bit time poor. So I don't, I'm not going to ask for that story, but when you were over there, I know you just play golf and stuff like that. And he's super competitive. Did, yeah. did you just get competitive outside of the pool as well? Oh, he's, he's a lot better at golf than what I am. That's for sure. He absolutely <laughs> loves it. If he could, spend you know all day out there i think he absolutely would um it's quite funny because you know we, we would definitely compete you know we'd put a lazy 20 bucks down on the last hole or something <laughs> stupid and i would always lose it and it's really funny he's one of those guys and it just reminded me of the sport that you never ever give crap to 
don't don't motivate them because what happens is unlike most people who you try and destabilize with mental games him Ian Thorpe a few others that I know they go the exact opposite they intensify they focus more and you know he'd get a birdie on the last hole when he probably you know done the last 17 and had you know was sort of sitting on even or one over and so you're just like oh my god as soon as there's something on the line as soon as I give you a bit of crap you intensify your focus and you improve your game and you're probably executing better than what your ability is right now that's exactly what he did in sport so I love the psychology of people like him because you just learn so much, even being just around them on a golf course. Definitely listening to Bob talk about Michael, it reminded me of that um, uh, documentary around Michael Jordan and just how competitive he is. And I think it's that champion mindset. I, I was watching that um, with my fiance Charlene and I was like, oh my God, hearing a lot of the stuff he said, I said, it's like I'm listening to Michael. It's like the behaviours, I'm just like, it's, it's, it's exactly the same. Like their, their intensity, their focus, their ability to be able to execute, win, 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 uh, is is phenomenal. Is phenomenal, and and yeah, I've, I've you know, I've never really heard. I grew up through the the era of Michael Jordan as a you know sort of young teenager watching him do these phenomenal things. You know, basketball wasn't huge here, but he made it huge. And um, I'd never really seen him speak before, but seeing him speak and his approach and not so much even the modern day stuff, but just when I was going back into the footage, yeah. I was like, oh my God, so much of that reminds me of Michael's approach. Hey, I know, as I said, we're time poor, so I'm going to wrap it up in a second. I want to finally ask you this question. What do you want your legacy to be in our great sport? And, you know, when people, do, when I mentioned the name Grant Hackett, what do you want people to remember you by as an athlete? Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure. I, I don't even think you can control that. Um, and it doesn't, yeah, I, I feel like what I would ideally like it to be was someone who was never gave up, was always there, worked extremely hard um, and got outcomes that they deserved, I, I, I guess, and, and inspired people along the way. Actually, I would have loved to, yeah, probably it's probably that. I've never thought about a legacy question before because I don't often focus on things behind me. It's not mm. my mindset. Um, but yeah, for inspired other people to do the race or to improve and to, to be better, um, because of what I did in my most difficult situations, um, that would be pretty cool. That'd be, that'd be great. Well, I can assure you knowing, um, a lot of athletes that I've coached and worked with and other coaches and their athletes that you definitely have inspired a lot of people, um, especially around that 1500 and that distance genre. Yeah. So, um, Probably the, uh, I think, you know, it's kind of, I've never been asked that question before. It's quite funny. The thing I would like to be most known as if I had a choice in that, because you don't have a choice in that, <laughs> exactly. sort of thinking, um, would be when I was down, I had the ability to get back up. And I think because that is the hardest thing to do when you're winning and momentum is good. That's, that's kind of easy at that mm. point. But when the chips are down and things aren't going your way and you're, you're literally laying on the canvas, but you get back up and you get the outcome, I think for me, that's, that would be the coolest aspect of, of anything I've done and probably a thing that I would pride myself in the most. Well, mate, I uh, think we'll wrap it up there. And I, I firstly want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I know you're extremely busy and, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time, mate, to, right. to come on. It's been an honour and a privilege to go through your remarkable career with you. Uh, you're a champion in and out of the pool. 
and how you've gotten yourself together after these, you know, few tough years made as an inspiration to a lot of us. Um, and, and I know that, um, there's a lot of people out there that, um, do look up to in that regard as well. And, and thank you for coming on and sharing some of those stories. And, uh, finally, mate, you know, um, thank you for your unbelievable contribution. Definitely one of the toughest, most determined, most gifted swimmers of all time. And it's been a pleasure to have you on off the block swimming podcast. A pleasure to be on here. And thanks for the chat, Robbie. Some, some new questions that I hadn't experienced before. So much appreciated. <laughs> You're welcome, mate. You are welcome. Now, this is the part of the podcast where I usually give my mate Nico from Pro Swim Workouts a shout out. And I'm proud to say the partnership will continue into season three with Pro Swim Workouts coming on board yet again. So here we go. Today's episode of Off the Block Swimming Podcast is proudly powered, as always, by Pro Swim Workouts. Wow, what a way to kick off the new season. A huge thank you to Grant Hackett for being the champion. We all know he is. And also coming out today is my one-on-one interview with the new head coach of Australian swimming, Rowan Taylor. Cracking chat with Rowan about his new appointment and where he sees the team progressing over the next year. So what are you waiting for? Jump over and see episode number two because it's out right now and waiting for your ears. Or eyes. Uh, I mean, I think I forgot. We're on YouTube now too. (laughs) Until next time though, guys, have a great day. Be good to your mum. And it's bye for now.